Well, good morning. My name is Stuart McCrabb. The joy of serving on staff is one of the pastors as well, and I'm delighted to bring you God's Word this morning. We are in a series uh, looking at 2 Thessalonians and then 2 Peter. So if you'll turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses. In the era of social media and what seems like the all-time high of political extremes, false information, clickbait, headlines, bots, propaganda, it feels like the air that we breathe anymore. It's, it's counterfeit truth, though. It's, it's counterfeit, and as we, we know, the, the problem with counterfeit is that all of it, whether it's the fake Rolex or the false news, is that there's always just enough truth to kind of tempt or, or lure us into believing that it's true, genuine, real. Now, false information, counterfeit truth isn't, isn't new with us, maybe by the ways that we receive it in certain mediums, but the idea isn't new. In fact, the, the Thessalonians were, were dealing with counterfeit truth. False teaching had come in and deceived them into thinking that Christ had come, that the day of the Lord had arrived. He had gathered his people, and they are extremely concerned about this. And so Paul addresses just this issue in chapter Two. And so let, let's start looking at the first three verses just to remind us of the context. At the end of chapter one is where Paul first brought up the second coming. And so he continues with that here. And, and these verses one through 12 is really probably the, the, the central uh, aspect of this letter, Second uh, Thessalonians. So here, here's chapter two, verse one. I'm gonna, I'll pause here and there to make some comments. Verse one, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word coming in the original language is used five times in the Thessalonian letters, always referring to the second coming of Christ. So the, concerning the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and are being gathered together to him. The word gathered here is the same form of the, the word that Jesus used in Matthew 24, 31, when he says the Son of Man will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. And so concerning the second coming of Jesus, his gathering of his people, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or Alarmed, and the word alarmed is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 24, 6. And he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. In fact, these two warnings, Paul's warning and Jesus' warnings, is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. And I just want to point out the fact that, and we'll see this later, Paul is leveraging appropriately Jesus' teaching on the end times. All right, so... Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Verse three, let no one deceive you in any way. Paul isn't sure what uh, media outlet, as it were, that this deception has come in. Maybe it was a spirit, a spoken word, or by a, a letter that, that seemed to have been by them, but Counterfeit teaching, nevertheless, has come in and 
deceive the Thessalonians into thinking that the day of the Lord has arrived, that he is, Jesus has returned, he's gathered his people, and the Thessalonians are greatly concerned about this. And so Paul tells in verse three, let's read this in full, let no one deceive you in any way for or because that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, it's interesting. At least it was to me. It might be to you, too. We read that, and it kind of seems like, well, that sounds like that should have been enough to squelch their concerns, right? It's like, Thessalonians, the day of the Lord hasn't come. We've got two things that have to happen first. They haven't happened, so the day of the Lord hasn't come. You're good. Don't, don't, don't worry. And, and yet it's interesting because Paul goes on then in verses 4 through 12 with like great detail. So let's, let's read those verses, 4 through 12. Speaking of the man of lawlessness, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse five, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Verse eight, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power, with false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. A lot of detail, yet if you're like me, you're like, I, I want a little bit more. In fact, right, it's like, Paul, give us a little bit more details and then I think there might be a few less debates about end times, right? So sort of specific and yet seemingly not saying enough. Well, what's up with that? Well, did you notice in verse five here that Paul is actually just reminding them of things that he already told them in full? I mean, you and I do this right. When we try to remind people of stuff, sometimes we just give the cliff notes, right? That's what's going on here. Evidently, this was enough for the Thessalonians to remember what he had previously told them in full. So this is enough for them, but we'd like more. But in God's providence... We do have the whole council of scripture. We have, our, we have our full Bibles, and we also have letters like this. This passage is enough. This passage is enough to discern truth from error. You see, Paul doesn't want us to be deceived either into thinking that the day of the Lord has come. So in this passage, he reveals these two prerequisites, that the rebellion has to come and the man of lawlessness has to arrive. And he says that what he provides us is enough, even for us today, to be able to discern truth from error and not be deceived. So we may want more, but in God's providence, this is enough. Now, we might be thinking, obviously Christ hasn't returned We've been around the block a little bit. You know, those Thessalonians, they were the new kids on the block. They hadn't kind of seen as much as we've had. He hasn't arrived. Got it. 
Look, so misunderstanding the end times might not cause us to get troubled in mind and anxious like them, but misunderstandings about the second coming of Christ can suck us into sign-seeking. To get wrapped around the axle with the events and people that we see in our world and so become idle. No longer doing what Jesus has called us to do in this time. Listen, Paul's teaching here is so that we won't get deceived. But that's not to then free us up to get bogged down with sign-seeking. It's to free us up so that we live for Jesus. And maybe you're kind of going through your Rolodex of scriptures as I was, as I was thinking about these things, and you're like, oh, what about the parable of the ten virgins? And Jesus concludes that, per- uh, that parable this way. Watch, therefore, because you know neither the day nor the hour. But that's not a call for sign-seeking either. It's a call to be ready for Jesus' return, and readiness is trusting in Jesus and being about kingdom living. That's what the Gospel of Matthew is about, trusting in Jesus and being about kingdom living. And that's what readiness, that's what watchfulness looks like. Our passage this morning is not instructing us to idly skim through the news, social media, go down YouTube rabbit holes, searching for the signs of the time. The seeming unclarity isn't also meant to push us into debate with one another that could cause disunity. This passage is enough to guard us from deception so to free us up so we can live for Jesus. In fact, actually what ends up happening as we go through the rest of the second Thessalonians here, the knowledge that Paul gives us in this passage is meant to motivate us to put off idleness of any kind and to be about good works and the work that God has given us. That's what this information is supposed to do for us. Not just fill up with knowledge so that we're just looking at every little detail. It's to free us up so we won't just be deceived. We'll be able to discern truth from error so that we can live for Jesus. So let's go ahead. Let's look at these two prerequisites. Simple sermon outline. We're going to look at the rebellion. We're going to look at the man of lawlessness for the purpose of being freed up so that we can live for Jesus. All right, Paul tells us, the Thessalonians, that the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion happens. In verse 3, the rebellion in the original language is apostasy, and as you can imagine, that's where we get our word apostasy from. This is no mere rebellion. This is the wide-scale revolt against God. And then in verses 9 through 12, Paul provides some details on this rebellious apostasy. Let's read them, and again, I'll pause here and there to make some some comments. So verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. The rebellion consists of the lawless one's deceptive activity against those who are perishing. And we'll I said, we'll talk about the lawless one in a minute, but the question right now is, why? Why is he deceiving them? Verse 10 continues, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So the apostasy consists of those who are perishing, and those who are perishing 
are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They refuse to love the truth, namely that God is God. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 11. Therefore, that is, as a result of their own rebellious refusal to love the truth, God sends them a strong delusion so that, for this purpose, they may believe what is false. This is parallel with refuse to love the truth. In order that, for this purpose, all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. To not believe the truth, to take pleasure in unrighteousness, more parallels with the previous. All of these are sort of synonymous, getting at the same idea of what those who are perishing are doing. Now, verse 11 is strange and jarring. As I mentioned, the word therefore tells us that what God is doing is a result of their rebellious refusal to love the truth and so be saved. This verse conveys the scriptural reality that God does and will give sinners over to the very thing they love most. And we see this also in passages like Romans 1, 22 through 24, where we're claiming to be wise, they became fools, that is unbelievers, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God's actions here are a result of their actions. And I mean, even in verse 10, the, the reason why the lawless one is deceiving those who are perishing is because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And listen, in the, the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, there's not contradiction, there's tension. We just need to let the Bible have it say. So what do we see about the rebellious apostasy? First, those who are perishing refuse to love the truth, just believe what is false or take pleasure in unrighteousness. Second, by the activity of Satan, the lawless one comes, deceives them into taking more pleasure in what they already do, namely evil. Third, God himself gives them over to the lie they have chosen. Fourth, they're condemned and perish. This is extremely sobering. And one of the things that we learn here is that the the path of destruction starts and is walked out in our very hearts with what we take pleasure in, what we believe, what we love. Whatever the Thessalonians were experiencing that kind of gave, the, gave them the sense to then buy into the lie that whatever they were experiencing made them believe that 
the day of the Lord had arrived, Paul tells them that it, it pales in comparison to the, to the rebellious apostasy to come. They, they needn't be alarmed. Now, two, two applications for us, maybe, maybe one that we can know for sure, and then maybe something we can sort of spiritually live, live out, apply. <clears throat> we can know for sure. We can know for sure. Again, remember, we are not to be deceived. The aim here is that we will be able to discern truth from a lie. So we will know. We can know for sure that the rebellious apostasy to come will be worldwide, unparalleled, and inarguable. Throughout Throughout history, people have thought that the day of the Lord has come. And however bad it was, and it was, Holocaust, apartheid, you, you, you can fill this in. It was not as great as the apostasy to come, Paul says. When the great apostasy comes, the church will unquestionably know it. Two, the truth of the rebellion is like a, a lighthouse protecting us from personal deception by the lawless one. Let me, let me make a connection that you see how this works. Paul makes it clear at the end of verse 12 that the opposite of believing the truth is taking pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, the, the opposite of truth is taking pleasure in unrighteousness. And now what's interesting in the original language, unrighteousness and wicked, that describes the deception that the lawless one does, same word. Same word. So we could actually describe this as the unrighteous deception, or we could say it's taking pleasure in wickedness. Here's the point. The aim of the deception by the lawless one is to make unrighteousness seem more pleasurable than righteousness. The deception is to make unrighteousness seem more pleasurable than righteousness. I, I don't know if it's true or not. It's gonna work either way though, but it's, but it's said that there was a king in the 14th century. He had two significant problems. One, he was a man who lived a life of overindulgence, which I think most kings probably did back then. What was stopping them? Uh, the other problem that he had was he had a brother who wanted to overthrow him. Well, <clears throat> of course, through his indulgences, he loved a great many things uh, to include food, which I can understand and appreciate. Uh, he eventually, though, did get overthrown uh, by his younger brother. His younger brother did not want to kill him, though. He wanted to actually make it much more painful. And so he threw him into a prison with lots of windows and doors that were not normal size. And the deal was, is that the younger brother, who was victorious, would send the older brother in this prison lots of delicious foods every single day. He could walk free if he could have self-control, but his pleasure of food was so great that as you can see where this is going, he ended up dying in the unlocked prison. Brothers and sisters, the battle to protect ourselves from the coming rebellion is a battle for pleasure. It's a fight for faith to forsake every earthly, worldly pleasure for the superior pleasure found in God alone. This is why Jesus, when describing salvation in a parable, says that it's like a treasure hidden in the field. 
And it says that, that a man who found it in his joy went and sold all that he had to go buy that field and, and claim that treasure. It was of infinite value and worth that gave him joy. The scriptures say that God has pleasures forevermore in his right hand. This is a fight for pleasure, joy, satisfaction in Christ alone. John Piper famously said, as God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So pray, be in God's word, pursue righteousness, fellowship with the body for the common goal of finding pleasure, truth, joy, love, satisfaction in God alone. Paul tells the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellious apostasy happens. All right, so second, second prerequisite and our final prerequisite, the man of lawlessness. Paul tells the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. So we go back and think verse three, this man is described as the man of lawlessness. He's the son of destruction. Later in verses eight and nine, he's identified as the lawless one. And Although Paul doesn't use the language of antichrist here, every way in which this man is described fits the bill for, John, for who John calls the antichrist. I mean, I, you just pick up any, any study Bible or commentary too, that, that's, that's who, by any other name, Paul is talking about here, the antichrist. The antichrist rejects Jesus, God who sent him and claims himself to be God. And Paul wants to protect us from being deceived by showing us how the Antichrist is a counterfeit to the real Christ. He wants to show us how he's an, a counterfeit Christ. And John Stott says it would be more accurate to think of the coming of Antichrist as a deliberate and unscrupulous parody of the second coming of Jesus. It is a parody. And Paul tells us about this counterfeit Christ by way of his identity and ethos and his coming and works. So let's consider the Antichrist identity and ethos. The word lawless doesn't simply mean to break the law, but it has the idea of disdain for the very idea of there being a law that we ought to submit to. It's more, lawlessness is also the rejection of God's authority and the, the exaltation of the autonomy of self. You see, the man of lawlessness would be a man that is the epitome of sin and lawlessness, characterized by his opposition to God's law and God's authority. And, and to be in opposition to God's law and his authority is to be in opposition to God himself. So verse four goes on to describe him as, let's read it, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Again, Paul has in mind Jesus' teaching, and in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus taught one of the signs prior to his return would be this. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet of Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Uh, Jesus says that he's referring to Daniel's prophecy. If you were to look at Daniel 9, 27 or chapter 11, verse 31, or chapter 12, verse 11. I believe that's what Jesus has in mind there. Throughout history, there has been a debate on how the abomination of 
desolation will be fulfilled and who will be this antichrist that will fulfill it after Daniel. It was thought that it was fulfilled in 167 BC by the Syrian king Antioch, the ninth, AKA uh, Epiphanes. And it was thought to be him when he uh, uh, desecrated the temple by setting up an altar of Zeus in it. But, but Jesus doesn't think that that was the fulfillment um, because he says that it wasn't fulfilled in his time that Daniel's prophecy was yet to be filled. Others see it as the fulfillment, uh, the abomination of desolation as the fulfillment of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Roman army and General Titus. Some have thought that might be what Paul was referring to since this letter was written before 70 AD. Predictions of the abomination of desolation and who the Antichrist will be, who will fulfill that has been long been a a pastime of the church. It was the emperor of Rome time and again until Constantine converted to Christianity and, and then it became the Vandals who sacked Rome. In the Middle Ages, it was Muhammad and his followers. Toward the end of the Middle Ages, it was the Franciscans who saw the corrupt popes as the Antichrist. At the beginning of the 13th century, Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX took great joy in calling each other the Antichrist. The reformers called the Roman Catholic Pope that Antichrist, which still stands in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Pope called Martin Luther the Son of Man. Even in recent centuries, candidates for the Antichrist have been Napoleon and Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin and various other political leaders. Two, two things, two things. The spirit of Antichrist is presently at work. This is what Paul meant in verse seven. Let's look down, let's read it. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is similar to what John said in 1 John 2.18. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And John wrote after 70 AD, if you're keeping up with history here. Second, for Paul and seems like John, the Antichrist is an end times figure, and therefore, so it would seem that the abomination of desolation is as well. I think John Stott is right when he says, sitting in God's temple, that's how the man of lawlessness is described in verse four, sitting in God's temple is a symbol of arrogance and even blasphemy rather than a specific reference to Herod's temple in Jerusalem. If this is right, even as church history seems to affirm, then the rest of the picture Paul paints is of a rebellion which is global rather than local and of an antichrist who is more an eschatological than contemporary figure, eschatological, end times figure. The identity and ethos of the antichrist is counterfeit to the genuine Christ. That's the big point. He is counterfeit to the genuine Christ. Jesus, the exact opposite. Jesus said in John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus didn't come to destroy, but to give life. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's more, Jesus doesn't oppose God or exalt himself above God the Father. Rather, those who believe in him 
And God the Father himself proclaimed Jesus to be God in the flesh. Peter identified Jesus in Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in the end, in the end, because of Jesus' submission to the Father, his coming and his dying on the cross, Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the Christ. But everything about the Antichrist is counterfeit to include his coming and his works. Let's consider the Antichrist's coming. It's mentioned in verses 6 through 10. Let's read those verses. If you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Now skip to verse 9. We'll come back to the rest of 8. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. The Antichrist has a, has a counterfeit coming too. We can note at least three things about his counterfeit coming. First, the Antichrist's coming is restrained. Paul talks of a restrainer in verses six and seven. In verse six, the restrainer is a it, and in verse seven, it is a, a he who. It's both. God is the restrainer holding back the lawless one and the means by which he does that is through the church and the preaching of the gospel and civil authorities. Again, God is the restrainer. This is why the restrainer is described as restraining the lawless one until the lawless one may be revealed in his time. Only the true God can exert his will and cause his right timing to occur and will do so until he is out of the way. In God's timing, he will remove his restraints like a dog on a leash and then the lawless one will be revealed. Second, the Antichrist coming is satanic I think this one is obvious in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. I don't think anything else needs to be said about that. Third, the Antichrist coming is, a, uh, Antichrist coming is accompanied with works. So here's, we've talked about his coming. Here's his works. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deceptions. See, being sent by Satan, the lawless one will have satanic power that would be displayed in counterfeit signs and wonders. Now, now to call them counterfeit does not mean that they are fake. It means that they are deceptive. They will move those who are perishing to further not love the truth that they're already not loving. Again, John Stott says, tragically, the coming of the Antichrist will be such a clever parody of the coming of Christ that many will be taken in by the satanic deception. Well, just as this counterfeit Christ has a coming, so does King Jesus. Look back at verse 8 from the beginning. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom 
The Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Brothers and sisters, King Jesus has a coming as well. And, and, and just like when Jesus was on the boat with his disciples and, and stilled the storm with just a, a word in, a, in an instant, so too when King Jesus returns, he will, he will bring to nothing the Antichrist with just the breath of his mouth. By the splendor of his coming, King Jesus will vanquish his enemies. Again, Matthew 24, 30 through 31, we read, The whole earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. <clears throat> Maybe the... Thessalonians were deceived into thinking that Nero was the Antichrist. He, he certainly would have been a good candidate. But it's amazing. For Paul, Nero, even with his wicked persecution and murdering of Christians, making them human torches to light his garden, for Paul... Even Nero paled in comparison to the Antichrist to come. Can you imagine? The day of the Lord has not arrived because the man of lawlessness has not come, Paul tells them. It's so similar to the way that we applied last time. I think there's something that we can, we can know, and I think there's something that we can consider spiritually applying here. And we can know for sure that the Antichrist to come will be more devastatingly evil than any other supposed Antichrist that has come. And we have many examples. And they all pale in comparison. Two. The insight Paul has given us can protect us Remember, this, the purpose of this, we may want more information, but the purpose of what God has providentially provided us is so that we don't be deceived, so that we can discern truth from error. And we can do that. This is enough. The insights that Paul has given us can protect us from the deception to come and the deception that already exists because lawlessness is already at work. The deception, like we've already talked about, and we could describe it this way, Deception is for us to see evil as good and good as evil, as Isaiah says. And the effectiveness of how evil and lawlessness deceive has much to do with how they present themselves. And it's not as a presenting themselves as polar opposites of good, but as clever counterfeits to good. I mean, think about it. If Satan disguises himself as an, as an angel of light, we, we, we should certainly not think that the Antichrist was going to come with horns and a tail. Right, right? Neither should we think that his wicked deceptions then nor the deceptions of lawlessness now that are already at work will be apparently evil. No evil masks itself by counterfeiting good. It, 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 it hides itself behind something that is good in and of itself. Think about it. Our arguments for euthanasia are often hidden behind concerns for quality of life. Nations and political figures will appropriate Christian symbols, scripture, even Christ himself to claim legitimacy for injustice and oppression. 
Arguments for abortion are often hidden hide the language of personal privacy and a right to choose. Listen, when the Antichrist comes, he will have satanic power to be infinitely more deceptive in counterfeit ways. So, brothers and sisters, one of the greatest resources that we have beyond the Holy Spirit living with us, one of the greatest resources we have beyond the Holy Spirit living with us to, to protect us from deception, from the, from the Antichrist to come or the spirit of Antichrist now is God's word in the community of believers. Right here. One of the greatest resources that we have besides God living in us himself is us with God's word open. Listen, God didn't leave the Thessalonians on their own. Paul, Paul wrote to them and reminded them of what he had already told them and told them to not be deceived together. And Paul hasn't, and God hasn't left us alone. We have God's word. We have Paul's writings. We're called to not be deceived together as well. The saying is that Lone Ranger Christians are dead Christians. We need each other. And brothers and sisters, by God's design, we are in community that is centered on God's word. The safeguard against deception and the remedy against false teaching and our own deceptive sin is to hold on to the scriptures together in community. Well, Paul tells the Thessalonians and us that the day of the Lord will not come until the lawless one appears. Paul doesn't want us to be deceived into thinking that the day of the Lord has arrived. So he tells us about these two, these two prerequisites that need to be before that day can come, but Paul doesn't want us to get wrapped around the axle about these things either. He doesn't want to be anxious or sucked into idle sign-seeking. That's not what this passage is about. Our call isn't to sign-seeking, it's to not be deceived so that we can discern truth from error. And I get it, this passage doesn't say all that we'd want it to say. I'd like it to say more. But it's enough. It's enough for us to be ready, but not anxious. Alert, but not idol-seeking. Our Heavenly Father wants us to know these things so that we'd be freed up to be busy with good works and the work that he has given us. So let's together continually be in God's words so that we'll know the genuine from the counterfeit. Let's, let's together pray and be in God's word and be in community together with the goal of finding pleasure, truth, Love, joy, satisfaction in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, let's live in the last days confidently waiting for our king to return by trusting in him and being about kingdom living. Let's pray. Loving Father, we, we thank you for this word. These are things that we... Even this, maybe we want more, but even this, we would not know unless 
in your kind providence, you not only inspired Paul, but you preserved it all these many years for us to be able to understand and apply uh, to our hearts and minds. So Father, I pray that you would empower us to live in the good of this. To, to not get wrapped around the axle with sign seeking and oh, but that we be freed up. You so desire us to not be of anxious mind, but to be about trusting Jesus, about being about good works and the work that you've given us. Help us. We, we desperately need your help to do these things. That we're crying out, please help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.